WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Thanks for joining us today. We know that's a very different circumstance from what we're used to. This is our first time doing a virtual Q&A. We're glad that you have all joined us. We're excited to see how this all rolls out because of everyone that's joining us today. Also, thank you to all the people that have been on our show that have agreed to join us on our live Q&A today. And thanks to all of the attendees joining us today. We're going to start off with Mike Pecos. Mike is going to talk to us about astronomy and about exploding stars, but I'm not going to give it all away. I'm going to be talking a little bit about the work that I do today, uh, which is astronomy. So I always like to think about what's going on in outer space. And a couple questions that we're going to answer together today are going to be one, what is a star? Two, once the star is done with its life, uh, what happens to it? And lastly, how do scientists measure stars? And what is some kind of information that we can receive when we look at them? So a basic definition of what a star is, is it's a ball of plasma. It's in the shape of a soccer ball or a basketball. And plasma is a material that's very hot and we find it here on earth. Some common places you might see it are in a neon sign or in certain kinds of TVs. So here we have a picture of our sun taken from a telescope, and we can see it's kind of has that round shape that we're used to. Now, on a hot summer day, we're used to the sun beating down on us and being very warm. And so what creates that heat is actually elements that are being smashed together. Kind of like when your hands get smashed together, they release some noise. These elements can release heat and light that we receive here on Earth. Now, because we're so far away, when we look at the sun, it's very smooth, and you shouldn't look at the sun directly. You wanna use proper eye protection. But if we have certain kinds of telescopes that are protected, we can see here on the bottom that when you look close, it's not perfectly uniform. There's a lot of different kinds of patterns that are evolving on the sun as well. Now, our sun is a kind of star, and stars are generally really, really big compared to our Earth. If you were to think of the Earth like a gumball and the Sun a gumball machine, you could fit over a million Earths inside of our Sun. Now, there are stars that are bigger than our Sun. It's relatively small. For a little comparison, we have one called UI Scuti, and it's so big that we can't even fit it all the way on the screen. So UI Scuti fit around a billion of our suns inside of that. So it just shows you in astronomy, there are things that are way bigger we even wrap our heads around. And as stars, get older throughout the course of their life, they will generally grow and their size will swell. At the end of their lives, different stars will take different routes. If there are less massive or tinier ones, they generally live a little bit longer. And once they reach the end of their lives, they will slowly puff off the outer ends of their stellar material. And they can create certain kinds of nebula, like you can see here, which we nickname the butterfly. Higher mass ones are what I'm interested in, and those will actually explode in an event called a supernova. And here is the leftover pieces from one of those stars that have exploded, and it is nicknamed the Crab Nebula. There are a lot of different ways as astronomers that we can get information. The ones you might be most familiar with is with telescopes. So you might have one at your house, or you may have looked through one before. Uh, the MSU Observatory does a lot of cool outreach too. Certain people, if you like to work with your hands or play with Legos, in your future, you might be able to build different tools that can attach onto those telescopes. And lastly, what I'm interested in is if you like 
playing with computers, you can do a lot of cool research using computers to predict what might happen. So I research how stars explode. These are important because this gives astronomers predictions and it lets us see, given this answer that I have on the computer, I can tell people where to point their telescopes. And the reason these events, these supernovae are interesting is because all humans around the globe, it's where we get the oxygen and the iron in our bodies. So to wrap up, you can be an astronomer too, even tonight. If you have a clear day, go outside with your parents or your friends and make observations with the telescope or your eyes. Go back inside and draw and color what you might see and record that throughout the course of a few nights. And lastly, if you'd like to go online, you can classify these things too on a website called Zooniverse. And you can go in this galaxy zoo where you get real pictures of galaxies and classify them for yourselves. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, so it looks like we got a, a few here. Uh, the first one from Annabelle. How do we know when a star is about to die? When we look out in space with our telescopes, um, and even with our eyes at night, we're fortunate because we can look up and we can see a bunch of different kinds of stars. You know, if, there's, if you're far away from a city light, you can see that there's a bunch of stars around you. And so we can get a population or an idea of where stars are at in different points of their life. And we can actually make family trees of these stars. And we can follow the very young ones, like young children, and very old ones, like older or elderly people. And based on these populations or these family trees, we can take a given star, stick it on the family tree, and that tells us how old it is. The short answer is we can compare a lot of different ages, and for a given star, we can compare it. There's one from Zach. Hello, Zach. How long does an average supernova last? Well, the quick, the quick answer is there isn't a basic or a simple supernova, so some of them change. But as these things explode, there are very quick changes that happen over the course of a few seconds, but the remnants can glow for thousands of years. And so some of the things that we look at in space leave really pretty lights when they exploded thousands of years ago. Uh, and there's two quick ones. Yes, from Jen. Uh, the website is called uh, Zooniverse, and they have a lot of different things that you can, activities you can do. Uh, the one I referred to was called Galaxy Zoo, but yep, you spelled Zooniverse correctly. And then from Ryan, age seven, has a robot ever flown in a star? I don't know if we've ever actually sent one into it, but uh, there's some recent probes. One is called the Parker Solar Probe, and that's been able to give us some really pretty pictures of the sun. And that's one that is orbiting very close to the sun and taking and getting information for us. Next up, we have Alyssa Logan, who's going to talk to us about her research on horse bone health and how she studies it. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming. My name is Alyssa Logan. I am a PhD student in the animal science department, and I study equine exercise physiology. And that's a lot of words. That pretty much just means I study horses as athletes. And something we really focus on is how can we prevent injuries and make stronger, healthier animals? So I'm going to bring up a horse you may know of. This horse here, his name is Justify, and he won in 2018 the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and then the Belmont, meaning that he won the Triple Crown. And this is not something that happens very often. While we have the opportunity that maybe a horse could win all three races, it's not very often that it actually happens. So as a three-year-old, he pretty much has his name etched in history and is almost a household name. Many people who 
may not know much about horses might be familiar with at least that the Kentucky Derby exists and that a horse can win more than one race. So before a horse can become a big, strong, famous racehorse like Justify, they need to go through training to train themselves to learn how to race, to train their bodies so their body becomes accustomed to racing. And so what we focus on in my lab is bone health during training and how we can impact that. So what we know from research is that young animals and young people too, their bones are very responsive to exercise and lack thereof. And bone is kind of expensive for our body to maintain. Some of you may have heard of something called calcium. And calcium is 90% of our body's calcium is kept in bone. So there's a lot of calcium in bone. And it's expensive to keep that in bone. It's kind of like your internet data. If you have too much data or too many minutes, you don't want to spend money on that, right? If you're not using it. So you're going to choose to spend less. So bone is like that. If an animal or a person is not using their body, and is sedentary and in confinement a lot, their body says, I don't need all of this extra energy and calcium and bone, let's get rid of it. Which that's not very good if we consider running like a horse like Justify here, he needs good, strong bones to be able to train and exercise. So we actually found that by sprinting young horses and young animals that we can increase bone strength and the size of bone. Similar to your data and your minutes, if you realize you need more, you're going to put a little more money towards that each month. You're gonna put a little more expenditure towards that. So the body says, we're running now, we're exercising now. It looks like we need our bones to be stronger. Let's put more calcium towards that. Let's make our bones stronger. So in some research that I did in my master's, we determined that a 71 meter sprint performed at least one day per week for six weeks leads to 25% greater bone strength. Now, I just threw a bunch of numbers at you which are not as fun and exciting as looking at cool pictures of horses. So I'm going to request that you do some math for me. Let's say that we're very busy and all that we can do is one day per week of exercise for our horses because we have many, many horses. So let's do the 71 meter sprint just one time a week for six weeks. So what is 71 times six? 426, awesome, Zachary. So 426 is what the answer is to that. So what that means is it took 426 meters for these horses, for these animals to experience a 25% greater bone strength. Now, because I'm a scientist, I work in the meters but we might be more consistent with feet here in the US. And if you've ever had a gym class, you've probably run around a track. So 426 meters is actually very close to the amount of a high school track. So if we take that 426 meters and split it into sixth, because we did that over six weeks, you just need to run about this distance here once per week to get a 25% increase in bone strength. And that's with a big animal. So that makes our life so much easier to just exercise them at least once per week and get a 25% percent 
increase in bone strength. And so that's what we found. It doesn't actually take a lot of exercise, but it needs to be a sprint to increase our animal's bone strength. So I appreciate your math and your participation. I'll, um, I'll step out of my slides. I see I've got a couple Q and A's and a hand raise. How long does it take to train a racehorse? That's a really great question, Zachary. Typically a racehorse will begin training when they are about 18 months of age, so about a year and a half. And these horses are being trained to run. So they're running in a straight line. So these horses will actually begin racing about six months to a year after they've begun training. So it's pretty normal for a horse to be racing at two years of age. In fact, we found again with our research that it's healthier for a horse to begin racing young, like we just showed, so their bones can get used to it, as opposed to racing older and all of a sudden their bones are like, oh my gosh, what is happening? From anonymous attendee, what other exercises can increase bone density in humans? That's a really great question. So bone in horses and bones in humans isn't different, it's bone. Obviously it's shaped a little different, but the response is very similar. So in humans, sprints work. Sprint does work. You don't have to sprint very far. I study running. I study exercise. I don't really like to run that far. But that 71 meter sprint is all that's needed. So if you run to your mailbox to go get your mail, that's pretty much all that's needed. Or even um, a vertical jump. So this one's a little more involved, but you can stand on a chair and just jump down. And doing that about six times is uh, sufficient to lead to an increase in bones. That was a great question. And kind of along the same question that Jen had, does, th does this work for humans too? So the response in bone is similar in humans. And I've seen lots of research showing that dynamic exercise, which include a sprint, is very helpful for humans. And finally, Artesia, thank you for your question. When does a racehorse stop racing? Uh, there's not a concrete forced retirement here in the US. So some horses may only race one or two years. Um, a lot of times a horse that will have a very successful season like Justify, they don't really race too much afterwards because they have a lot of breeding potential. So they might be done at three or four years of age. Other horses, they might race until they're five or six or seven, but it's not often that a horse over the age of five or six is very successful at racing. Not to say that they're bad at racing at all, but they're not going to be the fastest horse in the field and they typically compete with other horses of their age. So when the horse is physically ready to retire, they're not um, showing as good performance or if they're very top performer and they're ready to be bred, they'll be stopped racing. And often these horses have great retirement careers. So they'll go into more of the recreation and showing sector and be owned and shown by the general public. And they'll be retrained for dressage or jumping or trail riding or to give lessons. So they have a really long, healthy life and being trained on the track really sets them up for success early in their life too. And from Ryan, age seven, how long does a horse's bones last? Well, we want them to last their whole life. So um, we don't see bones disappearing when horses get old, but you do see uh, the calcium in bones start to go away and deteriorate when they're older. And that happens in humans too. So thank you for your question.
Thanks, Alyssa. Now we welcome Robert Logan. He studies how microbes survive in the desert. So hi, y'all. My name is Robert Logan. I am a microbial ecologist is my field. So that means it's, I, do, I get to do a really fun job. I um, am a microbiologist, so I get to study microscopic organisms like bacteria and fungi that you can't see without a microscope. And I'm also an ecologist, so I get to go outside and study environmental science and tiny, tiny organisms that live outside. And the place where I get to work, I really like working in deserts, very, very far away from Michigan. And usually when people think of deserts and the types of organisms that live there, they think of cacti, maybe you'll think of an oryx or large animals that walk along sand dunes. Uh, maybe if you're thinking of animals, you'll think of really cool things like elephants. These are some pictures I took when I was working. There's giraffes, really cool animals like uh, hyenas, cheetahs, and really big things. But one type of animal or one type of organism that a lot of people don't think about are microbes. So microbes, these are tiny, tiny, tiny organisms. They're microscopic, which means that they're so small, you can't see them with your eyes, and you have to use not even a magnifying glass. You have to use a super powerful microscope in order to see them. And these, these are just a couple of pictures of some of the beautiful different types of microbes, these tiny little creatures that live. And they're so small that we can fit so many of them on the planet. In fact, the number that we have on the entire planet is about 5,000 billion, billion, billion of these organisms that live on the planet. So there's so, so many of them. We usually think about these as these are organisms that make us sick, but oftentimes they also do really important things outside. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to see, okay, well, we know that there's uh, a lot of these really cool big animals outside. So I went and I went to one of the driest deserts in the world, which is the Namib Desert in Southern Africa, right here on the map. And I wanted to see a, a really cool thing that they had done there. They got this fog that comes in. So deserts are very dry. So there's not a lot of rain, but oftentimes there's lots of organisms that can survive off of the fog. So imagine like a really, really hot day where you're outside and you're running around and you're exercising and you just want to come in and get a drink. For lots of the plants and animals, they can't come inside and get a drink, but they can actually drink water directly out of the air. And so we know there's a lot of plants and animals that do this, but I wanted to know, are there any, any of these little microbes that actually live in the fog and are they able to use water? Because if they can, that'd be really good because that, that would enable them and help them to survive in this really dry landscape. So normally the way that we study microorganisms and these microbes is we use microscopes, which are, you may have seen these in science labs or heard about these before. They're really just like a high powered, super, super strong uh, magnifying glass that allows us to see things that are so small we can't see. However, I wanted to try a different approach because I still wanted to see these without the microscopes. So I said, let me try to grow them. So what I did, is I would take a little Petri dish, about three, about the size of your hand, about three inches, and I would put a Petri dish and I would put food that the microbes really like on there. And I would just put it outside, out in the air and in the fog. And then I would bring it inside and I would watch it grow. And so this is picture like a little plate. And on the first day, we didn't see anything. On the second day, you can see there's a few tiny little spots. And each of these is where a few microbes, so some bacteria, they that landed in the air onto the plate started to grow. And then we wait the next day and they start to grow more and then more and then more. And by the time a week goes by, we can see a lot. And so what we did is we put these out, some of them in the air outside, some of them in the air inside. 
some of them in the fog and we wanted to see, okay, are they, are there things that are living in the fog? And the next picture I'm about to show, about to show you, I think is pretty cool. Some people think it's kind of gross and they are kind of nasty, but if you look, we can see all these different organisms that are living outside in like regular air on the top left. But what do you notice that's different about the one on the right? It's all where there's fog. We see so, so many different types, types of organisms. And so we see more growing in the fog and the rain than we do outside in regular clear air. This was really exciting. We got to answer our question in this sense, do microbes live in fog? We found a bunch, they're everywhere. They're in the air, they're in the ground, and uh, they're, they're really able to use a lot of the fog that, that the plants and animals can use as well. So I'm gonna stop there, give you all a chance to open up for some questions. Do animals get hot? Oh yes, they do. So sometimes in deserts, lots of animals, the temperature in some places can get up to about 120 degrees Fahrenheit on some of the hottest days in some deserts. And the animals that live there are really good at finding ways to stay cold. Sometimes rabbits in deserts have really big ears so that they can almost like when you're hot, you don't, you want to kind of just like stretch out and feel the, feel the wind. They have really big ears that can help them cool off. Sometimes they like to hide in the shade or bury themselves underground. From Kate, age nine asks, can they live in the snow? Yes. So we actually did a really cool project here in Michigan where we took some of these same little Petri dishes and we put them outside when it was snowing so little snowflakes would fall on them. There's a lot less that lives in the snow because microbes like to, they really like it when it's hot uh, and wet. They like it when it's warm, they can grow faster. But when it's cold, kind of like when we put food in our refrigerator because we don't want it to go bad, when it's cold, they don't grow as well. But absolutely, there's, there's a lot in the snow. An anonymous person asked, are there microorganisms that live in clouds too? Oh yeah, there's actually a lot of microorganisms that live in the ocean called plankton. And these are tiny, tiny plants that live in the ocean. And again, there's billions and billions and billions of them. And sometimes the, the little plankton, when there's waves, they'll get kicked up, it will, uh, kicked up into the air and they can actually help form the clouds. You need, in order to make a cloud, you need water and you need something small for the water to attach to. And sometimes without microbes, we, it's hard to even have clouds sometimes. Ryan, age seven asks, can you breathe them in? We definitely can. So every breath we take, there's always some kind of microbes that are coming in and they're coming out. And that sounds a little scary, but for the most part, most of them are harmless. Most microbes, they don't hurt us. They don't cause any problems. Uh, occasionally there are some that, that can do that. And the number one thing that uh, we can do to take care of ourselves and prevent ourselves from getting sick from the microbes that are in the air and in the soil is to make sure we wash our hands whenever we're outside. So whenever we're outside and we come back in, we want to make sure we wash our hands really clean to remove the bad ones. But for the most part, if you're just playing outside and you're thinking there's all these things in the air, they're not going to, most of them aren't going to hurt you. What's the difference between outside air and inside air? And why are there more microbes inside? Um, that is a great question. It all depends on uh, what house and where you're in. And some are going to be uh, a little bit cleaner or dirtier. But the main thing is the house that we did this inside in had four or five people living inside. And we had two dogs and a cat that were inside the house. So there were lots of microbes that were hanging out in the air inside just because there were so many animals and so much activity. But outside, it was very open. There weren't many animals nearby, and so it kind of spread. They kind of they kind of spread around. Thank you very much. These are great questions. Thanks, Rob. Now we're going to welcome Kayla Connor, who studies what happens when there's an infection during pregnancy. 
I am Kayla. I am a student at MSU and I study bacteria. So I'm a microbiologist, just like Robert, who just talked. But I don't study bacteria in the air. I actually study bacteria that affect babies and mothers who are pregnant with babies. But more specifically, I study something called the placenta. So a lot of you may not have heard of, of that or what it is, or, and you may not know what that means. But um, so the placenta is actually an organ that's in the body of a mother during pregnancy. So if you think of your organs in your body, they all have a specific function. Like you have your brain and it helps to control everything that your body does. You have your heart and it helps to control blood flow in your body. And you have your eyes. These are all different organs that serve specific purposes. The placenta is kind of weird because it's only within the body of pregnant mothers and it goes away after she has the baby. So it's, it's, what's called transient. It's not always there, but it's very important for pregnancy. So the placenta is sort of like um, a, almost a caregiver to the baby while the mother is still pregnant. Half of the placenta belongs to the mother and half of the placenta belongs to the baby. And it's very important because it gives nutrients and and, and substances that protect the baby and oxygen and things like that to the baby during pregnancy while also helping to get rid of waste that the baby produces so that it can be happy and healthy and growing and, and that it can take all the nutrients from what mom eats and, and take those nutrients and, and get it within its own body so that it can grow and be happy and healthy. So bacteria, and I'll talk in a minute about why, why these two um, should come together, but bacteria, like, like Robert kind of addressed, they're, they're sometimes called germs, you'll hear them called different names, but they're small living organisms that we can't see with our naked eye. We have to use a microscope to look at them. And they live everywhere. Robert just said, you know, there's some that live in the fog and the snow and the clouds, and, and they live they live everywhere. They're even on your skin right now, which like Robert said, it can sound kind of scary, but it's actually not, not a bad thing. There are lots of good bacteria as well as bad. And then you probably are more familiar with the bad, but I'm going to tell you that bacteria are actually very good for us and we should be happy that we have them. So um, bacteria are found in food products like yogurt that help us digest our foods. You have bacteria all over your skin and they're good bacteria that protect you from bad bacteria. So by being on your skin, they kind of form like an army or a barrier to keep the bad ones out. We can take probiotics that will help us. We have good bacteria in our stomachs and our guts that help us digest our food. And those are very important because they help us make vitamins. So there are a lot of vitamins that our body needs that we can't produce ourselves. And so these bacteria take our food and help us to make vitamins out of them to help keep us healthy. And then we also have bacteria that are very important in the soil for helping plants um, live and breathe and be happy. So that's very good for us because, you know, without plants, we wouldn't have any food or you wouldn't have vegetables on your table and, and things like that. So it's very good that we have good bacteria in the soil 
to help us make our plants so that we can eat and, and have plants around us. But like I said, there are some bacteria that are bad and they can cause infections that make us sick. And so when that happens, we can get rid of them using special medicines called antibiotics. Maybe you've had strep throat before and you've gone to the doctor and they'll give you an antibiotic to get rid of that bacteria. So one of the, the big problems is that bacteria can infect the placenta. So remember, this is something very important that I told you about is very important for um, helping the baby grow and survive and be strong and healthy. So if bacteria get into the placenta while mom is pregnant, it can be, um, it can make the baby sick. It can make mom sick. Um, it can prevent the placenta from working properly and doing its job. So maybe the baby won't get all of the nutrients it needs and it won't grow as strong and healthy as it could have if the bacteria weren't there. And so I study how this happens and how we prevent bacteria from going to the placenta and keeping the baby safe and the placenta safe while mom is pregnant and helping baby to grow and be healthy. And I study about how bacteria pre prevent the placenta from doing its job. So I, I asked a big question that's, if bacteria are there, what exactly are they doing that's causing the placenta to not work the way that it should? So that's all the slides that I have. I know that's a lot of information, but if you have any questions, I am more than happy to answer them. Do babies get sick a lot? Yes, when they're young, do babies do have a tendency to get sick a lot. But that's one of the reasons that the placenta is very important. So the placenta does something, it, it gives babies something called antibodies. So these are like almost soldiers in your body that fight microorganisms and say, you don't belong here. You've got to leave. You're going to make us sick. And so mom will produce antibodies and the placenta can give those antibodies to the baby to help the baby from prevent the baby from being sick. So are microbes related to COVID-19? So that's a very good question. So the coronavirus is a type of microbe. Um, so different types of microbes, we have bacteria, we have viruses, and we have um, fungi. Those are the big ones. So viruses are a type of microbe. They're, they're quite different from bacteria um, just in the, in the way that they function and the way that they infect. They are related because they, they can cause illnesses as you can see with, with coronavirus. And there are some viruses that can infect the placenta and, and hurt the placenta the way that bacteria do. So far, the good news is that there's not really any evidence that coronavirus is, is getting into the placenta and hurting pregnant women or babies, but that's still something we'll have to follow up on as, as the um, pandemic continues. The next question I had is, if there is an infection in the placenta, is it possible for the mom and baby to die? Another good question. Unfortunately, sometimes that is possible. More times than not, it's going to be more harmful for the baby than for mom. Sometimes the infection can get out of control. 
Um, so that's why it's very important for us to be able to detect these infections and understand how to prevent them and how to treat them. From Ryan, age seven, are there some bacteria that can make a baby die? So that's sort of the question that I just answered. Yeah, there are some that can cause death, but I, I wanna stress that, you know, there are still very good bacteria. When, when you're born and, and you have a baby, the baby will have what's called its own microbiome. And those are the collection of good bacteria that protect us and help us to produce the vitamins and nutrients and things that we need. Is there a cure for the infection in the placenta? The problem is that there are a lot of different microbes that can infect the placenta, and we have to figure out unique ways to combat each one of them. The bacteria I study is called Listeria, and um, we have antibiotics that can treat that. There's another bacterium that commonly infects the placenta called group B strep. We have antibiotics that infect that. But there are some viruses and things out there that we're not really sure how to how to go about it yet. So that's why it's very important for us to understand safe ways to safe ways to combat some of this. What could these bacteria do to the baby? So once they get into the placenta, they sort of take over all the all the nutrients and and things like that. And so they can prevent the baby from getting nutrients like they should. So maybe they don't get all the vitamins and things like that that they need. And they can also prevent the placenta from giving oxygen to the baby like it should. So the placenta gives a lot of oxygen to the baby, just like you and I are breathing. Well, the baby, when it's still growing in mom, it can't, it can't breathe. It's, it's surrounded by what's called amniotic fluid. And so it can't, it can't breathe like you and I do. So it gets all of its oxygen from the placenta. And so sometimes if it's infected, it will prevent the baby from getting all the oxygen that it needs. How do you know what kind of microbe it is? If you're a doctor and you have a baby or a mother who comes in with an infection, you can take all the symptoms and, and figure out based on the symptoms what it could be. Sometimes she'll give you a history and she'll say, well, I ate a whole thing of cheese three days ago. Well, sometimes that'll tell you what she has because a lot of times cheese will have certain bacteria in it. You can take what's called a culture and you can grow the bacteria and figure out how it behaves and acts and that'll tell you what it is. And then the last thing you can do is DNA sequencing. All right. Looks like John is back on. So this question I'll get after John. All right. So I'm going to keep the microbiology themed going. Like Kayla, I'm also a third year PhD student in microbiology and molecular genetics. I'm going to be talking to you about how do cells talk to one another when they are sick. I like to think of them as similar to rooms in a house. So how a house has a lot of different rooms that serve a bunch of different functions. Our body has a bunch of different cells that can do different things to help keep us alive. Now, since there are so many uh, cells in a, our body, is really important for them to be able to communicate to each other to keep us running as smoothly as possible. So why study is how do they talk to one another? And one way they're able to do that is by use of these things called vesicles. 
Now these vesicles are ball-shaped little particles that these cells kind of throw out into the world. And what's interesting about these vesicles, they can actually carry messages to each other. When these uh, vesicles, they carry these messages and they can be taken up by other cells are then able to read and understand that message. This is just a way for them to talk to one another. Analogy, I like to think of them as these vesicles are similar to mail. So how uh, someone can write a letter, um, put an envelope, sit out the mail, these vesicles are able to carry a message from these cells. So these can either be transported to a neighboring person or neighboring cell, or they can be carried either through the um, poster service slash our own bloodstream, um, we can carry throughout and talk to cells that are very far away from them in the body. And once they are delivered, the recipient can either can read the letters slash understand the message from the vesicles, and that's how they know what that original cell, and that's how they know that how they are doing. Now, particularly what I study about these vesicles, they're important for a lot of different things, but I'm gonna talk about how they affect during bacteria. So like Kayla mentioned, there's a lot of good bacteria and there's a lot of bad bacteria. I study these bad bacteria. So some of them can actually um, invade and live inside our cell. As you can imagine, that is really bad. It can actually make the cell sick. And how, these, how our body depends against these bacteria by use of our immune system. Our immune system has a bunch of different types of cells that act as uh, the police officers, defenders of our body. So when the cell when's invaded by bacteria and becomes sick, they need to be able to talk to our immune system, be able to fight against it. So they send out these vesicles, and these vesicles then reach our immune system, and that recruits these immune cells to attack and stop these bad bacteria from continuing to spread. And I study how this interaction happens, hopefully come up with a better treatment option. Thank you, and I'll uh, start taking any questions. What happens if the message doesn't get through? Fortunately, if the message doesn't get through, then the immune system's not able to activate. So that's why these cells create a, a lot of these different vesicles, even hundreds or thousands at times. So hopefully, at least some of the message are able to get where they're supposed to be, and that can help uh, fight against that infection. Thanks for that explanation, John. Now we're going to welcome Nick Young. Nick is a data scientist and he studies graduate admissions. Yes, as Chelsea said, I am a data scientist and an education researcher. So when you hear that, the, probably the first thing you're thinking is, what exactly is a data scientist? So I guess the simplest way to explain what a data scientist is, is someone who's looking for patterns in some type of data, for example. So we think of patterns are typically something like this, right? We have like here, a series of shapes that keeps repeating. We do square, circle, triangle, and repeat that a few times. But it could also be something a lot more complicated. So think like a word search. So here, this is a Scooby-Doo themed word search. And we could be look, trying to find those words in here among a bunch of kind of random letters. So more typically is what data science is like is think of a word search without all the words. We don't necessarily know what types of patterns are in the data we're looking at. We're trying to figure, to try and make meaning of what's actually here. And to do that, we can use computers to kind of automate the search for us. So we can be looking through and trying to see if the computer can plot these patterns from data that can be huge. 
So think about thing, data that's so big, it can't fit on a single computer. There's just not enough space for it. It has to be spread out across multiple computers. So what is this actually good for kind of practically? Well, so there's a lot of kind of real world applications for it. So if you're on, using Netflix now, you'll notice there's always the little percent match underneath each video title. And that's one thing that you can be using this data science for, is if you have millions of people who are on Netflix watching different shows, you have an idea of what people like together. And based on what you've watched previously, the algorithms and computers can then give you a rating for how likely you are to watch some other show. And then for sports, this is becoming a huge thing as well, of trying to think about how to quantify player performance rather than just kind of traditional statistics. So for football fans, you might have seen commercials for next-gen stats of thinking how can you kind of quantify how likely, say, a receiver is to catch the football given where they're on the field or how tightly they're covered. What I do, though, is apply this kind of data science ideas to educational data. So when you're at school, you're constantly producing different types of data. So that could be, say, like your grades in your courses, how you're feeling about assignments, things you turn in. When all that we can use to kind of learn something about the educational experience and also use that to improve it as well. My specific area is thinking about graduate school. So for the people that have all presented so far today are graduate students. So that means we've done kind of the first round of college, which is typically like your four year or so program. And then after that, we go to work on another degree, often a master's degree or PhD. And similar to a job and applying to college the first time around, you have to submit some form of application, which then professors at the university will decide whether you should be admitted or not. And from here is what I do is I look at those applications and try and see what in there is useful that would give us some idea of whether someone applying will actually be admitted to school or not. But the idea is, by under looking at these applications, we can hopefully make the application process more fair and better at selecting people to join schools like Michigan State University. Awesome, Nick. Thanks. Um, Thank you. So you have two questions over there. So for the first one, is the job hard? So it definitely can be depending on what type of data you have. And is also so like the first project I was actually working on when I started at Michigan State was probably two or three months of just figuring out how to actually kind of work with the data we had. That first of all, I'm never really doing it before, but also realizing that computer you have to have your data in a way that computers read. So just like to talk to other humans, you have to have you have to speak the same language generally. You have to be able to talk to the computer in its language, which isn't the same as human language. There's a different part of kind of like figuring out how to actually convert to do this analysis. And the second one I see here is what happens if you don't find a pattern? Well, so that's definitely possible. So that could be, which then you have to kind of think about, well, what's the reason for that? Is it because there isn't a pattern there? So it is possible that we're not actually looking for a pattern in there. Or is it a way that you're trying to find the pattern? So for example, you could think back to the word search. Maybe we only look, say, left and right for words when all the words are up and down. And that means we'd have to try, say, a different approach. Thanks, Nick. Next up, we have Kay, and she's going to talk to us about inflammation. Hi, everybody. 
Uh, my name is Kate Waringa, and I'm in the PESCA lab at Michigan State. <laughs> and our lab studies things in our environment that cause inflammation, and we also study things in our diet that can block inflammation. First, before I talk specifically about what we study, I want to talk a little bit about what inflammation is. So we had a really nice explanation about good bacteria versus bad bacteria in our immune system already. So that really helps set the stage for what I want to explain here. Inflammation is a normal immune response in our body. Inflammation often occurs after some sort of damage happens. So for example, what this picture is showing is a splinter going into your finger. And when something like that happens, when you have damage that maybe breaks your skin or something, you can have all sorts of potentially dangerous junk like bacteria and viruses and those microbes we talked about earlier that can get into your body. Our body's response to these foreign invaders that aren't really supposed to be there is to produce an inflammatory response. When this happens, the area where the damage happened can become swollen and painful um, or it can feel warm and turn kind of red. So you've probably experienced all these things if you ever skinned your knee or got a splinter or anything like that. So when this happens, the body sends a whole bunch of immune cells in there to find and destroy those bad microbes. Once the problem is taken care of, the tissue's healed, and all of those immune cells that came in to do their job can now leave because the job is done. And so this is a normal and healthy response. However, inflammation can sometimes become chronic. And during chronic inflammation, those immune cells stick around longer than they should. This could be because there's repeated damage happening to the same area, or sometimes it's because the immune cells just get confused and don't really realize it's time for them to leave. And those same techniques that the immune cells use to destroy the foreign invaders or the bad microbes can also damage our own tissues. So this is an unhealthy type of inflammation. Now, as I mentioned, our lab studies things in our environment that can cause chronic inflammation and also what can be done to protect against this. Specifically, we study a special type of dust called silica dust. It's produced from a lot of construction and manufacturing processes. And so people who work in these types of jobs can be exposed to this dust and they can inhale it. And when they inhale it, these teeny tiny particles go all the way down into the lung and inside the lung, they can cause a whole bunch of damage. This is happening frequently, like every single day when these people are on the job, it can lead to chronic inflammation. So as I mentioned, we also study things in our diet that can help stop this inflammation. And we've done studies um, using animals where we've shown that when the animals eat omega-3 fatty acids, this can actually block the inflammatory process. Um, and omega-3 fatty acids are um, a special type of fat that's found in certain foods. Specifically, we see it in fish like salmon or tuna, but you can also get omega-3 fatty acids by taking fish oil supplements, which is what's shown in this little image here. So that's a summary of what we're studying in our lab. And so really our big questions that we're trying to unravel now is how exactly does the silica cause damage to the lung? And then how do the omega-3 fatty acids block this inflammation and protect against the development of chronic inflammation? That's all I have for you guys. So thanks for listening. And I'll answer some of the questions. So do you help people? We don't work directly with people, like with human patients. But a lot of the things that we're studying and learning about in our lab can be used to help people. So for example, people that work in jobs where they could be exposed to this type of silica dust. 
for them and their employers to know that the dust can maybe be dangerous can help them know how to protect themselves against it. Or like with the omega-3 fatty acids, if there's patients that have diseases that have a lot of chronic inflammation involved with them, if their doctors know, based on studies like what we do, that omega-3 fatty acids can be protective, then the doctors can tell their patients to take omega-3 fatty acids. The next question says, can this dust be involved in construction? Yes. So construction is one of the main jobs where we see a lot of production of this silica dust and where people get exposed to it. And that's because the silica dust gets produced whenever we're cutting through like rocks. So for example, say in your, in your kitchen, you might have like a countertop that's made of that granite, like rock. When you cut through that, so if someone's working in a construction job and they have to cut through something like that, it produces all the silica dust. And so then they can be exposed to it. Does dust damage lungs? It depends on what type of dust we're talking about and how frequently you get exposed to it. So just kind of the dust around your house just when you're going around breathing in your house, that's probably not going to cause any problems for you because it's not uh, this more dangerous kind of dust and you're not being exposed to a lot of it. So if you're exposed to a little bit of it, your body can protect similar to how the picture with the one splinter, your body is able to resolve that inflammation. It's more if you're exposed over and over and over again where it becomes a problem. Thanks, Kate. Now we welcome Pratap, who studies underwater robotics. Hi. Everyone, I'm Pratap. I'm also a PhD student. Today, I'll be talking about optical communication for underwater robots. So I'd like to go take this narration by answering three questions, like what I am doing, why I'm doing it, and how I'm doing it. So what, what am I doing? In our lab, Smart Microsystems lab, we mostly work on underwater robots. So for example, here on the left, you see there's a robotic fish, which is like a, uh, around four feet wide and like weighs about uh, about 50 pounds. So this is like a, a kind of robot we build. Now, when we want to have like, say, uh, 10 of these robots underwater, like coordinating to each other. So we want some kind of communication between them. And that communication we do through optical communication, or at least we are looking forward to how we can use light to communicate between these robots why we are doing underwater robots and why optical communication so to answer that let's say see our our mother earth about 70 percent of earth is covered with water and major portion of this water body is like underexplored uh, there are a lot of things uh, in the deep ocean which are still not uh, human have not humans have not reached or explored to explore that we send a team of say scuba divers or say robots or say robots with scuba divers. So like a different kind of uh, groups or teams we send. Now, when we go underwater as a team, we need we should always be able to talk to our uh, fellow teammates. Like, uh, so for example, when we go through a scuba diver, as a scuba diving team, we have some sort of gestures. Like we can say, oh, look, here is a turtle, or I'm running out of breath. Can you share your uh, gas with me? So this kind of coordination is essential to work as a team. When the robots goes go underwater, they want to share information, share, they want to talk to each other, then they need some sort of communication. If you want to do this communication wireless, we in the air, we have options like cell phones, Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. So all of these options, they don't work underwater. So as soon as you take your phone underwater, so even though your phone, iPhone or Samsung, it might be waterproof, but as soon as you take it, say, around like one feet of underwater, it won't, it won't work. It uh, 
just don't see any signal or it cannot send any text message or something so what is the good technology for uh, for communicating under uh, in underwater domain so currently like acoustics is the real good industry standard like in submarines uh, it is used but the data rate is really low so like you can only send like text messages you cannot uh, you cannot send like images or uh, photos or uh, uh, videos so that's why uh, led communication which i'm working on comes into a picture because it is a really promising option uh, we can share videos and photos over this how do we do this we use blue light and see if we have a light and we flash on off and we do it say a million times or a billion times a second so that way if we do it like real fast this much fast we can actually transmit videos or photos using uh, using just the flashing and so when i say a million times it's like a, a megabits per second megabits per second is like when 10 megabits or 100 megabits it's usually our wifi speeds these days so here on the right uh, you you can see like i have a kind of a joy, uh, a ps4 controller hooked up to this is a device i made so where the the commands from this when i press a button it uh, it transmits the corresponding light corresponding signals through light so here you can see it's there is a like a blue light so and why do we use blue light is because uh, in this picture it looks scary but uh, just bear with me what i'm trying to show is like here it shows the absorption how much what are the different components of lights are there in different wavelengths and here you can see like uh, there is a like a blue then that goes to yellow and red so these this is the spectrum of light and we see like the for the blue light here it has the least absorption coefficient and why absorption coefficient i mean is like when you say, say send any light underwater the blue would be the one which would go farthest so that's why when you see say a lake or a sea it looks blue because all the other colors are absorbed by water and only blue is the prominent one which reaches our eyes so that's why we use blue light now in this in my work what i do is like i have a robot so this is my the robot i made in my lab and this is a uh, at the i am circle pool at michigan state university now what i do is i i take this controller the joystick underwater and uh, i just play with this robot i say okay go forward go up and down so it's like a remote control for the underwater robot so thank you guys uh, thank you all for attending the session it was really nice like lot of questions i heard and it was a really good session thank you any questions for me uh so when you say this technology is waterproof so technology is like uh, just that the blue light has to somehow propagate water so the light there is no notion of uh, whether this light is waterproof or not so what i think what you are asking is whether the robot was waterproof or not so the robot we have to make it waterproof and it's a it's a kind of tedious task like we first to make a body so mechanical structure and we see whether uh we see like without any electronics we we don't put any electronic components and we kind of seal it the best we can and then we uh put a paper or a paper towel or something and put that robot in the underwater and say let it sink for like 24 hours and see if the if the water is 
going in if the water goes in then we recheck okay where could be the source of leak so we do this iteratively until we get the we get the robot waterproof and then we can put our electronics inside and then we then it's like a good to go next question is how long does it take to make robots oh so yeah that uh, that depends on what kind of robot you are making so the so the first one i showed like the the robotic fish so it was like a evolved design so it took like a 10 years or say 7 years of evolved design so we started with a really small fish and then we kind of improved on it it goes bigger in the new design and all and my current robot uh, the robot which i am uh, which i showed like the yellow one it took like uh, 3 months to make it to gather all the components and do the all iterative testing and all. Thanks, Pratap. Now we're going to open the floor to everyone. To reiterate what everyone was talking about, Mike talked about astronomy, like what is stars. Alyssa was talking about horse bone health and racehorses. Robert Logan was talking about microorganisms in the desert. Kayla was talking about what happens when a mother becomes sick. And John was talking about the extracellular vesicles associated with it. Nick discussed data science and graduate admissions and Kate discussed omega-3 fatty acids with inflammation. Then Pratap just spoke to us about underwater robotics. Now that everybody had a chance to give their presentation, if there are any remaining questions, please go ahead and put them in the chat. Hi, okay. Yes, inflammation can last for a long time. So if it's the normal response that I was talking about, kind of the healthy response to inflammation, like if you get a cut or if you have a little infection or something, then you should have that inflammation you kill off all the bad junk, and then things kind of go back to normal. But there's a lot of diseases where people experience what's called chronic inflammation, where they have kind of a low level of inflammation for a long time. And that can lead to a lot of problems. It can cause damage to certain tissues. Um, it can just make people feel kind of cruddy and sick all the time. So yes, it can last a long time. And that's what we're trying to figure out ways to, to help with. One question is from a kid whose dad works in a construction site. They're wondering, would it be possible for their dad to inhale silica while at that construction site? Depending on what type of construction, yeah, it is possible to be exposed. But the good thing is um, most construction companies and industries and the people that are involved in like making the rules make sure that their employees have access to things like masks to protect themselves from breathing in the silica. There's also a lot of information out there for people that work in construction so that they're aware um, when they should wear a mask and things like that. So it's possible, but there's a lot of ways that the construction industry has worked to help protect people against that. How does chronic inflammation respond to omega fatty acids like in arthritis? So um, arthritis, specifically rheumatoid arthritis, is actually a disease that they've done a lot of um, studies with omega-3 fatty acids in. So there have been some really cool studies showing that when they give patients with rheumatoid arthritis either omega-3 supplements or they ask them to go on diets where they eat a lot more fish so they get more of those omega-3 fatty acids, um, they see a lot of improvement in their symptoms. So for example, they have less swelling in their joints, less stiffness when they wake up in the morning, um, that kind of thing. So that uh, is actually a pretty active area of this omega-3 inflammation uh, research. All right, we're going to jump now from Kate to Nick. Nick, how do you decide which patterns to look for in your data? 
So for that, it actually depends on, I guess, what type of data you're working with. So in some cases, you actually don't have to specify a pattern. You can just tell the computer that there is something in here and see what you can find out of it. While the type of work I do is you kind of specify what thing you're looking to try and find a pattern in. So for example, with applications, I can say, look for patterns related to who is admitted, and then the computer will try and find something related to that. Thanks, Nick. Two microbe questions now. One's asking about Earth and one's asking about space. How about are there microbes in space? And if so, how many? One way that I like to think about the number of microbes on Earth is if you go outside and you look up at the sky, you can see a few thousand stars at a time. But if you looked up and you counted every single star in every single galaxy in the entire universe, all of them, for every one star, there's 10 million microbes on Earth. So if you want to write it, if you want to write it out, it's you have to write five with 30 zeros behind it. So that's a huge number, and I, I, I can't even think of how big it is, but uh, the answer is a lot. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I actually don't study microbes in space, but it's something I'm interested in kind of in my free time. They have actually found microbes on the International Space Station. And so they're they're studying how space affects those. And so you can some if you if you Google it, NASA has information about microbes in space. We haven't found ones from other planets. The ones we currently know of have been man-made. And so we talked a, a few people talked about how we have bacteria inside of us and on, on us. And so when we send astronauts up into space, they bring that bacteria with them. And so because we have humans on the space station, we find microbes there as well. But we're, we're still looking for evidence to find it on other planets or some other moons as well. We haven't found ones that don't come from Earth. What can the silica dust do if you're exposed to it? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, the silica dust, when you breathe it in, it goes really deep inside of your lungs. And so that can cause some damage to the types of cells that live inside of your lungs. If this only happens, you know, infrequently or there's just a little bit, your, your immune system will do that inflammatory response that I talked about, and then it'll heal the tissue and heal the cells and things will go back to normal. The problem comes when people um, are exposed to it over and over and over again. So it does cause damage. Normally your body can fix it, no problem. But if you keep experiencing that again and again and again, then that's when you see the chronic inflammation. For Alyssa, can a racehorse have a talented mother and father, but then themselves not be talented? That is a really good question. And that absolutely is a possibility. So genetics does play a pretty big role into our animals' performance. And it actually plays a big role in our performance too, but we don't study humans in the same way. But um, so performance in terms of being able to race, those traits of being able to race fast and have endurance, that's absolutely heritable. And so oftentimes it's typically the case that we, we breed a mother and a father so that their baby has the best of both worlds, so that they are strong, so that they can race fast and we want a good mix. Sometimes that we do the best that we can in breeding and the baby just doesn't race well. Beyond genetics, the environment goes into factor, the environment that the animal was raised in, the nutrition that the animal was given, the exercise that it got, its training, and also some horses, they just, racing may not be their thing. 
It can also go the complete other way too, that a horse, two horses can be bred that might be mediocre in performance and you can just get a freak of an amazing racehorse. That doesn't happen all of the time. Actually, that's very rare for that to happen. So it's very normal. We, we breed a sire and a dam that have good race performance and that produce good racing babies with the intent that they have good racing babies. But of course, sometimes that doesn't happen and that's okay. What happens if a horse doesn't race well? So if they aren't doing well in race training or aren't doing well in racing themselves, they will typically be retired and go on to a different job. And in the same question, what does a retired racehorse do? I'll kind of answer all of those things together. They can do so many things. They are incredibly versatile animals. They're, it's actually very atypical that these animals are just sitting in a pasture doing nothing. We have a wonderful herd of retired standard red racehorses at MSU. In fact, we have one horse himself who won about a million dollars. We call him Million Dollar Annie. And these horses have an awesome life. They help us with research projects. They get weighed. They eat different treatments. They do some different exercise. So their job is that they do some research. Other horses, there's many different um, adoption programs where horses, they're, they go through a little bit different training from race training to be able to do other sorts of equine sports that maybe you've heard of. Maybe you've heard of jumping or dressage. Some of them become wonderful trail horses. They teach students lessons. So they have an awesome life beyond racing. And some of these horses that are superstars like Justified or um, American Pharaoh that won uh, the Triple Crown, when they're retired from racing, they typically will go on to a breeding career because they had such good performance we want to breed other horses to be like them. So those were really good questions. How do you know if a horse is hurt or in pain? They can tell us pretty clearly with their performance sometimes. Um, if they're a horse that typically runs at a certain speed and all of a sudden they're, they're not running as fast as they normally do or their behavior changes, they're, it's obvious they might grit their teeth, they might pin their ears back or flag wave their tail when they're running. It'll be obvious that they're uncomfortable. Of course, for us, the most obvious way to see if a horse is hurt is a limp. These horses, um, if they're going to be injured, it's going to be in their legs most of the time. And so we'll see them limp kind of like us. When we're feeling a little sore, we'll, we'll get injured. Um, so that's how we know if a horse is hurt or in pain. We have another question. Why do you get acne? Is it because of bacteria? I was just in the process of typing an answer. So... Bacteria can cause acne, and it can also um, be exacerbated by what Kate talked about with inflammation. So what happens is um, typically this bacteria called C. acnes um, can overgrow on the skin, and, and you'll get an inflammatory response to that, and it'll cause the red spots that you see on your face. Um, and I just want to add real quick, an important thing is with the inflammatory response is it's different in different people. So like Kayla was talking about that bacteria that likes to live on your skin. Some, for some people, they won't have a huge inflammatory response to it and they won't really see acne develop. And other people can have the same bugs on their skin and have acne. So each individual will kind of produce a different response to whatever's around. Finally, for our last question, is it good to pop a pimple? You probably shouldn't because if you have 
um, bacteria within it, it can sort of spread the bacteria. Um, I'm a terrible person to preach that though, because I'm always popping them if I get them. So, um, but it's best to not, to not pop them and spread the bacteria. And also when you're touching your face like that, you're putting bacteria from your hands onto your face. So it's best to not do that. Thanks so much, Kayla, for answering that last question. And thank you to our attendees for coming to our first ever live Q&A session. As well as thank you to all of the speakers that have joined us today. Keep an eye out for new content. We're going to still be recording new episodes, and it's going to be really great. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes for Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Sophie Sagan, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandron, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. This show, as well as the entire Impact 89FM podcast lineup, can be found online at impact89fm.org or by searching for The Sci-Files on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on The Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at sci-files at impact89fm.org. See you next week on The Sci-Files. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.